It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Before we start today's show, a few items of business from the comments section of the Londonist Out Loud show pages. Uh, belated thanks to HH Geek and Wimbledon Al for some really interesting suggestions for future episodes. We're following quite a few of those up. Definitely some stuff we hadn't thought of there. If you'd like to recommend a person, place or idea that we should explore. Now, a listener called Mustafa Manawa has written into the show to say, I want to visit London City from Bangladesh. Anyone help me for this purpose or any guidelines? Please let me know. Well, I'm sure we'd be delighted to band together in a spirit of community to compile for Mustafa a selection of hints and tips for the newcomer to London. Listener, what bit of insider intelligence would you like to share with Mustafa? Tube etiquette? Uh, places to go or places to avoid? No misleading Mustafa now, please. Tweet the show at Londonist Sound, if you please, or drop a comment at the foot of this week's show page at Londonist.com. And if we like the cut of your jib, we might broadcast your thoughts to a grateful globe. For now, though, a popular place for the recent immigrant to live in London is Hackney, and it's the subject of today's episode. Today being the 17th of October 2014, me being N. Quentin Wolfe, and this being Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds You ain't never seen the light before Just a song through from your front door Hey baby, step out me See things of air, land and sea Some creep, some saw I'm in a back room. Uh, I thought I was in a Jelly Deal store just a moment ago, but I'm in a back room and I'm at the Hackney Museum. And with me, Councillor Jonathan McShane is the Cabinet Member for Health, Social Care and Culture. And Talia Coombs, who's the Heritage Manager here. Hello, you both. Hi there. Hello. Hello, hello. I've been looking forward to this interview, I should say, for a long time. For, For quite a number of years, I've been keen to talk about an event that goes on. And it's ostensibly a month long event that takes place. I think it actually extends beyond those parameters and it's Black History Month which is happening now and I've been keen to get involved, keen to find out what's going on. Talia, I wonder if we could start maybe by sketching what Black History Month seeks to achieve. Well, Black History Month, um, particularly in the museum, is an opportunity for us to really celebrate what we do on a daily basis throughout the year because Hackney Museum is very keen and active in working with local communities and Hackney has a very diverse population and has done for a very long time so it's really just a culmination of celebrating those activities Um, and on this occasion we've actually got three different exhibitions which kind of represent very different projects that the museum has been engaged in over the last year or so. It's a celebration and uh, it's very much as a museum it's about learning and conversations and sharing. 
will be, of course, investigating what those exhibitions are. And I'm really interested in that. There's a photographic uh, exhibition with a twist, an enormous number of photos going on there, and a bit of a, a treasure hunt as well, I think. But, Councillor McShane, you have an impressive title. <laughs> I don't think you banked on it being such a, a large portfolio necessarily. I'm curious, how long have you been a councillor and what does being a councillor involve? I've been a councillor since 2005, and I've been full time as a cabinet member since 2010. And I guess it involved, there's two sides to the role. One is representing a small part of Hackney and my constituents there, and the other is representing the whole of Hackney on health, adult social care and culture, which in our terms means parks, libraries and leisure, and also this amazing museum. I hope this doesn't make me sound like a political dolt, but when you say representing your constituents, how does that work day to day? Essentially people coming when they've got challenges either in their life or the life of their community so it could be anything from um, broken windows having an overcrowded house or it could be a group of residents who've got a good idea about something they want to do in their area they want to make an improvement to a local park or do something on their street and it's the councillor's role to help people navigate the system and get the improvements that they want to see in their lives. So it sounds like some of that stuff would go through other channels, sort of neighbours being annoying, there'd be an environmental health officer, but when does that start to find its way to your door? I think increasingly um, younger generations are better at navigating things online and you know, sending off emails to the right people. Um, often older people or people who've got an awful lot going on in their lives, a lot of, a lot of problems, need a bit of extra help. Um, so it, it tends to be either when someone has tried themselves and has hit, find, find that they're hitting a brick wall or someone who, because they're so busy dealing with quite serious issues and needs a bit of a helping hand. We're going to sketch out what Hackney is, but I'm, I've always wanted to ask, with the number of constituents you've got, which do you happen to know how many? I guess on average there's about 10,000 residents per ward. And we all know that one person talking in an impassioned fashion about something that's been on their mind can take up a good length of time. How on earth do you manage to work with that number of people who want to talk to you? Well, you know, luckily for me, um, there's two things. One, there's three councillors representing every ward and uh, all 10,000 people don't tend to have a problem at the same time. Um, <laughs> um, which, which is helpful, but there, there's a lot of need in Hackney. You know, Hackney's you know, one of the most impoverished boroughs in the country. You know, there's huge positive things about Hackney, um, best place I've ever lived. But there's people who have big problems in their life and sometimes just need a bit of assistance so they can make the most of their potential. Um, and it hasn't overwhelmed me yet. Probably we shouldn't take another step into the conversation without sketching the boundaries of Hackney and even speaking to people before the interview there was some confusion as to whether Hackney is a town or an administrative area or a borough or a district or or what it is and precisely what it contains so I don't know who'd feel best placed to say something about that. Um, Yeah effectively Hackney's a borough and it is like a number of London boroughs it was formed 50 years ago when they merged three smaller areas so Stoke Newington, Shoreditch and Hackney were merged to form um, the borough of Hackney and uh, there's an interesting story as to um, why it was called Hackney so um, obviously those three areas had a um, very strong sense of place um, a bit of rivalry between them they didn't necessarily like each other's areas and therefore to choose one of the places as the name for the enlarged borough was controversial but in the first instance the name they came up with for the combined borough was Kingsland because of Kingsland Road that runs through all three of them but at the time um, the Labour Party in Hackney who was controlling the council um, there were quite a lot of people who were anti-monarchist and therefore they didn't want the borough to have a title that had um, any reference to the monarch in it and so at the last minute Kingsland was dropped and Hackney was chosen. That's delicious. Do we know which king? I presume it, it was the king's land. Do we know which king? We don't, no. Well, I don't. <laughs> I want to prod, I don't know what question to ask precisely, but I want to prod the early records of the area. When does the, these areas start bubbling up through the archives? Well, I think the earliest record we have in the archive dates from the mid-15th century. Because of those three distinct boroughs that came together 50 years ago, there's almost three distinct historic collections. The largest one is the Hackney one and the Stoke Newington one. Shoreditch is a little less defined. I think historically it was a poor area on the outskirts of the, of the city fringe. Um, and so, yes, the Hackney Archives has... Um, has a very rich collection of archives that, that, that cover the boroughs. We, because we were an inner London borough, we do some of our records are at 
the London Metropolitan Archives, which isn't geographically that far away. It's just in the neighbouring borough of Islington. Um, but the Hackney Archives will collect records, historic and contemporary, about the the local area, the businesses, the people, the institutions that are here. So it's quite a rich collection. What do you find yourself doing day to day? You, you, your purview is what exactly as far as the, the history of the area goes? My day consists of making sure that my staff and resources are delivered effectively and efficiently. Unfortunately, I don't get the luxury of looking at the collections as much as I'd like to these days. I have to do that in my spare time, which, um, which actually I do do. And I, I'm, I penciled in to visit the archives again this weekend to do some research for um, just my own interest. And as a heritage manager, it helps to know the history of the borough. And so I'm slowly learning that. But um, so mostly it's just about making sure that the museum is accessible and open and is used and is relevant to people. So and I have a team of amazing staff that that help me do that. So I basically make sure they are happy and working most to the best of their ability. This is resonating. I was talking to Lawrence Ward at the London Metropolitan Archives and I was gathering this cloud of suspicion that when you go into certain jobs and it seems like being an archivist might be one of them, you possibly start out not quite doing the thing you wanted to do and then there's a brief period where you're really hands-on and immersed in the thing and then you sort of transcend that and you're managing it but you're not doing the thing again. I wonder if there's uh, anything like that trajectory in your line, Councillor. I don't really know. I I, I think in... In local government, it's probably it feels quite nice. I, I understand, you know, I, I know I have friends who are teachers and then are good teachers, so become promoted, and before they know it, they're not spending any time with children. You know, they're writing out timetables and you know disciplining fellow um, colleagues, um, doing recruitment, that sort of thing. Um, actually, in local government, I think what you find is you're a councillor for the first time, and there's lots of problems, and a lot of the time you're kind of raging at what's going on in the town hall, and even you're finding it difficult sort of navigating the system and you think you know if only I knew a bit more had a, you know my hands on a few more levers and therefore it's actually quite good to take on a role like the role I have now because you know I'm able to answer some of the questions that I struggled to answer before and um, so as, as of and the nice thing about being a councillor is you do have this dual role you're still a hands-on representative in a very local area but you're also able to do some of the sort of more strategic stuff at a borough level so that that keeps me interested um, certainly to date. Perhaps we should pull the camera back a little bit and talk about what Hackney is now and how it's made up and then perhaps go backwards in time and look at some of the people who, as as they've arrived here and and contributed to what it is and previous iterations of Hackney. How many people are we looking at in the area and what sort of profile have we got going on in terms of uh, important demographics? I mean, figures vary, but I I think we often use a figure of 240,000 and uh, a growing population. So there was a long period where the population of Hackney was in decline. So, um, but that's, that's changed now and so it's one of the fastest growing parts of the UK now. And I think it would be fair to say there's a good ethnic mix going on. How does that break down? Yeah, I mean, it's the strength of Hackney is its diversity. So, And what's also happened is over time there have been different waves of migration. So the, the precise makeup has, has changed over the years. Um, as of today, and it's constantly changing because, for example, we have large numbers of um, Eastern European people who've arrived in, in the last decade or so. Um, but uh, today there's a large um, African Caribbean population, there's a large West African population, and there's a, one of the biggest Orthodox Jewish populations in Europe, in Stamford Hill in the north of the borough, and um, probably from sort of 20, 30 years ago onwards, there's been a, a really rapid growth in the Turkish and Kurdish population. So they would be some of the really significant um, population groups. But I think one of the things we're most proud of in Hackney is that all those groups you know, genuinely get along and, and mix well. So it doesn't, it, it's not something, people are very conscious of the benefits of it being a really diverse place. But some of the challenges that I think that people have found in other parts of the country um, so far haven't happened here. And that's something we're very proud of. 
Of the three areas that you mentioned earlier on, it struck me that two of those certainly seem to be areas that have enjoyed a burst of prosperity in the last little while. Stoke Newington, people talk about maybe 10, 15 years ago, it was quite a different place. Shoreditch, of course, has has gone all uh, artsy and media and and all that stuff. Uh, There's a bit of a suspicion in my mind that maybe either the beneficiaries of of that prosperity or possibly the people who've come in on, on that wave seem to me to be predominantly white. I wonder, in the, in the context as we think of Black History Month, whether there is any truth in that. I mean, I, I, see what, I see what you're saying in the sense that there's this sort of argument about gentrification across London and there's reasons why a place like Stoke Newington or it's now Clapton and other parts of Hackney that previously um, weren't seen as fashionable places and weren't seen as good places to bring up a family. So there have be, been big changes in that um, that's probably the most crucial one. So for a long time, there were lots of um, young professional people moved to Hackney because there was affordable accommodation and there were lots of parks and there were lots of nice things about it. It's a very artistic, creative borough. Um, but when their children got to a certain age, our schools were so terrible that when your kids got to sort of seven, eight years of age, you started to look around London for a place with better schools or, in fact, you know, half-decent schools. Now that we've transformed our schools over the last sort of 10, 15 years, people are, are laying down roots. So that's one of the, the big changes. Um, but, I, I mean, certainly the figures still show that we're in, in, you know, one of the most diverse boroughs in the UK, um, and I don't see any evidence of that overall um, changing. I mean, certainly there are wealthier people than there were before, but the diversity is still very strong. As I say, there's still this sort of continuous migration of the population. So there's a, there is a there is this constant turnover of population, and that's one of the stories that we follow and celebrate in the museum is this migration of people that the people coming into the borough wherever they come from whether they come from in london or the uk or the world and those stories and how they then influence the identity of this place whether they then stay or move on or it's it's that story of arrival and movement that's that's one that we constantly listen to and share in the museums it's quite an important part and and one of the things always strikes me about Hackney which I think makes it different from other London boroughs because I mentioned before this amalgamation of three places and in other parts of London those three places have remained fairly distinct certainly in terms of how people feel about where they live Um, whereas in Hackney I think you'll find that people have a dual identity so they're very proud of being from Hoxton or from Dalston or from Stoke Newington but they'll also tell you that very proudly that they're from Hackney and that's that's again I think that's one of the reasons why um, the diversity doesn't create the challenges it does in terms of um, how people rub along together that it has in, in other places somehow there, there's something although all these areas have very distinct characteristics there's this sort of overarching sort of sense of Hackney which is about I think about tolerance and respect and um, but also about quite rapid change. I mean, people talk about the gentrification in recent years, but there's been rapid change in Hackney for two or three hundred years now. And so we're kind of used to that and uh, people are used to um, coping with the challenges that that brings. Well, it's certainly true. There's on Morning Lane, I seem to think I've spotted an enormous school springing up there overnight and lots of development going on. We should probably focus in on Black History Month and, and very specifically talk about those waves of immigration. Now, I've got in the back of my mind the voice of Miranda Kaufman, who you may know is a specialist in very early black history in the UK and she'd be wagging her finger at the suggestion that there were no black people in uh, anywhere in the UK before X date in the 20th century. But of course we think of that as being a period when a lot of that immigration took place. But how would you chart the swelling of the black population in this area? Hackney's kind of this amazing microcosm of what is actually going on, not just in London, but the UK. So the population changes and migration after the Second World War is is evident in Hackney as it is in other urban cities across the UK. That is captured in the main exhibition in the museum, which is a a snapshot of photographs taken in the 1920s. 70s, which show the population change, which in the pictures is predominantly Afro-Caribbean. And there's another exhibition in the, in the museum, which is looking at the period of the Emancipation Act of the um, sort of 17th, 18th century. And that also is looking at black people in Hackney. So as you say, there was black people in Hackney before mm. uh, 1948 by a couple of hundred years. But um, so the, so the, 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 it is a, a kind of 
There is an explosion in the post-war period because of political agendas um, and the need for economic drivers and workforce. And as I said, Hackney's kind of a microcosm for that example of what was not unusual in other urban areas. Because the country was, as we know, short of workers for various things and we were having this post-war put everything back together boom and we needed people over here. Uh, so you, you were talking about the council of the dual identities that people have of, of, let's say, Hoxton and Hackney. Does that mean then, uh, having had a, a generation of people transplanted from somewhere else in the world, that it's a triple identity? Yeah, I think I, I, that's a really good point to make. And again, it's this it's a challenge that I think politicians in particular grapple with how, how do you um, celebrate where people are from but also get people to buy into whatever it is your your vision of of the country that they've arrived in and I think America is always cited as an example of a place that captures that in that you will have people who are relatively recently arrived in America very proud Italians or Indians um, who will describe themselves as Italian American or Indian American and will celebrate lots of festivals and um, occasions from um, their homeland and having a stars and stripes in their front garden and I think that you're right that there is also this sort of split identity between being you know for example Turkish or Kurdish um, or being West African and um, being very proud to be from Hackney and to be from London and you certainly see that if you, you know, if you wander around Hackney there's people who still um, you know shop and dress and um, um, uh, you know, they, they gather in faith settings in ways that show that they're still very attached to a lot of the important things about where they've come from, um, but they're also very proud to be from Hackney. And I think it's, it's probably, I don't know whether it's intentional or, or whether there was ever a plan, but the fact that those two identities seem to um, coexist quite happily is, I think, one of the reasons why we don't have the tensions that you have in in some other places. I think one of the other reasons may be that we have a large number of big populations, but there isn't one really big population. And um, we, with a few small exceptions, generally, those communities are, are kind of spread across the borough, whereas I think in other parts of the country, people from who've arrived from other places have tended to congregate in one area for mutual support and because you know, you know relatives and friends tell you that this is a good place to come, and that can create tensions over time. So it's it's a it's a well it's a well spread out set of communities. I wonder, we know of course that in America you're obliged to sing a nationalistic uh, hymn in the mornings and salute the flag, and all. I think that's true anyway, that's certainly what I've been given to understand. And there's a very definite idea, ideal behind being American. And with Britain it seems always to be a bit more in flux and it's very debatable whether something is or isn't uh, British beyond uh, one or two, you know, cricket and cups of tea, which is itself highly debatable as an image of Britishness and Englishness. I've certainly heard even second or third generation people not identify themselves as English, somebody else is English, they consider themselves to be whatever it might be, Indian or Caribbean or, or whatever. What is the resistance? Why, why is there still that gap? Are we not, maybe correctly, but are we not pushing an idea of what it is to be British? Um, well, first of all, I'm Scottish. So I'd never consider myself um, to be English, even though I've spent you know more than half my my life in England. Uh, what about British? Um, I, I very much consider myself um, to be British, and um, I'm very pleased that Scotland is still part of Britain. Um, it's interesting that we have citizenship ceremonies in the town hall now, and I've sat through a couple of those, and that's people from every corner of the world. And there is a Union Jack, and at the end of the ceremony, you know, people um, they they read out a pledge, and they've passed a test that most. Um, people who were born in Britain would struggle to pass asking lots of questions about British culture and history that we may not know the answers to and and they stand um, to attention to the national anthem at the end of it and I, I like the idea of citizenship ceremonies in that I think it's often a really important moment in what's often quite a long and painful journey for some people particularly people who've escaped from countries where they were at risk and um, so I think it's important that it's marked as an occasion and there's a sort of solemnity to it but I certainly, as, as a proud British and Scottish person, I find the whole flag-waving um, national anthem side of it, it just it doesn't, it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable, but it doesn't make me feel warm either. And I think our relationship with Britishness and flag and Queen um, varies very much um, from person to person, but generally is not, there isn't the strength of feeling and attachment that there is, for example, in the United States to the Stars and Stripes. 
as you look at the collections, whether it be that the archives or the museum exhibitions and the stuff that doesn't go into the exhibitions and the reactions to them, are you able, Talia, to identify tides in the development of the idea of citizenship and what citizenship means uh, for various perhaps ethnic groups or different groups at different times? One of the sort of methods of engagement that we have at the museum is based around the journey and the arrival in Tacney. And it's a process of listening to people explain their journey. And often that journey is always an emotional journey, whether they've been pushed or pulled into that migration, whether they're escaping a difficult conflict or looking for a brighter prospect. There's, There's always a story. And what we've done over the last decade or so is work with people to give them a a space to to share their story and then to use that story as as a learning tool. And the education sessions here are very powerful because you have a class of children which are, are very diverse and they have then listened to this story and recognised that that story is like their story, it's like their family story. And then they've stood up and shared stories that their teachers didn't know had happened in their children's lives. So it's not necessarily the the different stories because people, everybody has a different story, everybody has a different background. It's about the similarities, it's about sharing those and recognising that you may have a different cultural background or you may come from a different country or race, but actually quite often what you've got when you come to Hackney is a similar story. And that's what's important about sharing that and understanding it and learning from it. When you think of those stories, uh, what, what's, what stories do you have in mind? I sort of suspect from the way you're talking that you might have listened in on one or two particular stories being told. Um, there's a very powerful one with the gentleman that was recorded only a couple of years ago and he escaped a war in West Africa and he came to Hackney when he was 10. He'd never shared that story with anybody and I suppose no one had ever asked him about that story but when he came to the museum the staff here engaged with him and they asked that story and when they heard it they wanted him to share it because they knew that would be a powerful lesson that other children could feel some comfort in. And um, he's now an amazing friend of the museum and an advocate to the service because it became a sort of a process of him to actually go back and reflect at that terrible time when he was a child and and that that escape of conflict and, and coming to England and Hackney as an orphan and having to find his sense of place and belonging, which... I suppose he had found, but then in sharing that story at the museum, actually realised that this is this Hackney was who he was, and he did have that sense of place. And he now shares that story quite often. He's wrote songs about it, and he's performed, and he sort of credits the museum for giving him this increased sense of confidence that he can share that story and be proud of it. Because there's nothing to not feel proud about. You, know, you shouldn't feel ashamed that that was your journey because it was a journey that's happened that's ended in a in a good place that's interesting you were talking earlier on about the the transience of the population or some of the population and so i guess especially when you're young trying to find out who you are and how you fit in when, when everything's moving all around you can i ask by the way of what we see out there in the hackney museum how much of that is your responsibility <laughs> i have an amazing manager who um takes much of the burden of delivering an amazing museum from me. Yeah, they do, we should name them. They're doing an excellent job. <laughs> Nitty is doing an amazing job. Yeah, she, she's brilliant. She's on a well-deserved leave at the moment because she's just put up three exhibitions in the last two months. So uh, she's, she's on well-deserved leave. But she would have loved to have been here. We'll, we'll jump on those exhibitions. We're, we're coming up for a break, and then we'll, we'll jump on those. Um, I should say, if you haven't been to the Hackney Museum, it's right by the town hall in the epicentre of Hackney. Um, you, as you come, I visit a lot of local museums in this job. Uh, this is a great museum. There's a pointy helmet as you come in. There's uh, a, a boat made out of a tree. There's everything you could possibly want. And, and like I say, there's half a jelly deal shop, uh, so you won't go short. And we'll talk about the specific exhibitions that are um, that are playing out at the moment after a word from our spot. Do you buy monthly travel cards for your commute? 
You could save money and avoid renewal hassle with Commuter Club, a new way to access the big discounts offered by annual travel cards with all the flexibility of paying monthly. Find out how and sign up at www.commuterclub.co.uk forward slash Londonist. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and I'm at the Hackney Museum with Councillor Jonathan McShane. He's the Cabinet Minister for Health, Social Care and Culture and Talia Coombs, the Heritage Manager. And Talia, we'll come to you first in this uh, second part and we've got exhibitions on the cards, three different ones. And the one that really grabbed my attention was uh, just a colossal number of photographs in Dorset. And this doesn't seem to make any sense on the face of it, but what has this to do with Hackney? They are the photographic collection of R.A. Gibson, who ran a photographic studio from the early 1950s, just down the road from Hackney Museum. Uh, He retired about 10 years ago, and the business was taken over by another photographer, but kept the name. Um, and then that closed in 2012. And the uh, collection of photographs taken by Gibson, the original founder of the gallery, found its way onto eBay. And uh, a gentleman, completely unbeknown to the museum, started buying up uh, these packet bundles of negatives because he was interested in 1950s photographs he then does a sort of kept appearing on ebay as these things do and he contacted the seller and said you know how much stuff have you got here you know i'd be interested in buying it all and he did and he um thought this would be a nice little pet pet project to sort of scan and sort of find out who these people are and after uh, a little, a couple of weekends and, and years, he realised that actually this was a lifetime of work, and he was never going to be able to get through this collection of what is around. We don't know the exact number, between forty and forty-five thousand negatives. When whims go wrong. <laughs> so he realised that this um, was a job too big for one individual. So he contacted Hackney Museum. Yeah, but he, the point here is he didn't just go, this is silly, why am I doing this? He decided to uh, to continue. Well, he, he scanned a few images and they are on... He has a Flickr page, so you can... If you Google R.A. Gibson, you'll find... Um, Kevin Danks, who was the collector's uh, Flickr page, and that people are having com- were having conversations on there. But then he realised that this was just you know way too much of a hobby for him. Um, so it did go quiet for a few years, and then he sort of contacted the museum earlier this year and said, "I've, I've got this collection, and he, he look at the Flickr page and tell me if you're interested." And we, were, of course, were interested. We jumped at it. Um, did, did you understand exactly what they were from the off? Yes. <laughs> as, as any archive or museum professional would know, that they were key. What's, it, what's, what's lovely is that Kevin Danks realised that these, this was an important collection and needed to go back to Hackney, which is why he contacted us. Um, because at the end of the day, as much as um, museum curators and archivists can tr- try and keep their uh, sort of hand on the pulse and know what sort of things are around to collect you can't collect everything or know everything so you do rely on people being aware of your service and then coming forward with things um and he um even though he bought this collection he did donate it to hackney archives and the friends of hackney archives went and and picked them up from his house in dorset and brought them back to hackney and um We've had a team of volunteers from the museum working with Nitty, the museum manager, to scan um, a selection of images which, um, in the time frame, were, were literally like, this looks like an interesting negative, let's, let's scan it. So there are quite a few pictures on display, but it's only a tiny, tiny fraction of the thousands and thousands of negatives that are in the collection and now in a very safe store in the, in the archives. We're about to set up a working party because people are so excited about this collection because so many local residents remember the business because it was there for so long. It was such a part of the high street and nearly everybody seems to have had their photo taken there (laughs) over the last 30 years. So it's a really exciting exhibition and collection for 
for local people to engage with and and they're already recognizing people on day one people are recognizing people in the collection in the collections and the photographs when you say photographs there's the passport photograph the very stern uh, regulated picture or there's those ones with the pull down backgrounds where you pretend that you're in a pasture or something and you smile uh, with a rictus uh, grin which kind of uh, portraits are we talking about here so ron gibson was commissioned to do um he was commissioned to do civic events but the portraits on display in the exhibition this time around are very much ones where people have gone into the studio. So they're, they're looking for an image that captures a moment, whether it's them in their best clothes or just wanting to have a nice picture of themselves. You know, this is a time when not everybody would have had a camera. No, right, this, this feels very old-fashioned. Yes, yes, it does, even though not that long ago. It is the 1970s, but... Um, there's a lot of pictures where people are recording their first job. So this is at the time when um, the demographic has changed. People are, have moved into the borough and it's it quite a nice balance with the other exhibition about the NHS nurses that we did with uh, Black Women in the Arts and where they've looked at retired cabinet nurses because there's a selection of pictures of nurses and professionals who have obviously taken that picture for them to then send home to their families to say, I've succeeded, you know, I've come to London, I've got a job, here's my photo in my professional uniform, and they're sending that home as a kind of, as a record of their success. And there's a series of those sorts of pictures. And there's a series of young people just striking a pose, literally striking a pose. I mean, that just sort of typifies the, the exhibition, actually. And then there's weddings, there's a series of weddings, which, again, is... Um, which are all sort of taken outside the town hall, which happens here most Fridays and Saturdays. You get lots of weddings at the town hall. So um, it's got an interesting... uh, It's interesting on on multiple levels, the fashion, the styles, uh, the the sort of changes in the people and that sort of record. And what's interesting, and we did... There is a a short film that goes with the exhibition and one of the ladies who worked for Ron Gibson said that um, basically the studio didn't change so um, although we've only really focused on pictures from the 1970s in this exhibition the brown curtain is the same brown curtain for about 30 years she just took it down and washed it occasionally and occasionally changed the um, plastic flowers that are in the vase next to most of the women that are posing next to it and the, and the sort of he, he was nice when you see the pictures together is the same poses that he makes people uh, sit in um, so it's, got, it's, a, it's just really nice to see the pictures all together because obviously when you went there and had your photo taken you just saw your picture at the end of the day you didn't see the fact that he got everybody to do the same pose in the same studio there's something both interesting and slightly eerie about that isn't there i I think it sums up the museum in lots of ways in that there are some local museums that are um, a collection of stuff um, you know, often quite nice stuff left by a wealthy benefactor um, that doesn't really tell you much about it. Could, it could really be anywhere. Whereas I think Hackney Museum is, it's a modern museum and it, the artefacts all tell a story about the people who came here who made the borough what it is today. And this is probably one of the best examples of that and something as, as simple as a collection of photographs. And I think the point Talia made that the backgrounds and the poses are almost identical in so many of the pictures means that you focus on what, what's different and what's different is, is the clothes and it's what um, people are wearing and what that tells you. And as Talia said, um, a big part of it was sending pictures home to say that you'd made a success of your life. And I think one of the nicest pictures is from a distance, it looks like a um, sort of middle-aged man in um, in the armed forces. And when you get closer, you see that he's beautifully dressed and his hair is perfect in his uniform. And on his um, shoulder, you see that it says Group 4 Security. And I just think it's it's interesting that it, you know, security is the sort of job that people are often quite dismissive of nowadays, as it being a sort of poorly paid, low-skilled job. Um, and yet, at the time, we don't know what the journey of, of this man was. It would be great to find out more about him. But at the time, there was a huge amount of status attached to the fact that he was living in London and he was doing a responsible job that demanded a uniform. And um, there are stories like that in, in all of those pictures. So I think it's it's the perfect Hackney Museum exhibition. If you saw this one, I think you'd understand what the museum's trying to achieve. 
It sounds really triumphal. I mean, a lot of these are uh, sort of trophy shots by the sound of it and celebratory shots, and that seems to me to be really at odds with the way we take photographs so casually now, not posing for them and uh, firing off a dozen pictures in a second. Is there something about a, a time being kind of frozen in aspect there? Is this, uh, are you really feeling that you're looking back to another another period, even if it was just a few years ago that the collection ceased to be made? Yes, and I think um, visitors today are already looking at those photographs and thinking actually a picture is a record you know it isn't something to just snap away and discard it, it is actually a snapshot in time and maybe I should think a little bit more about why I'm taking this picture and what it actually represents and perhaps even how people are going to look at that picture in the future I suppose as a coming from an archival background people often think oh you're, you're just interested in the past but actually an archivist is about what is happening in the contemporary to know and to know what is it that people are going to be interested in, in the future what in the future what are we going to look back today and know what's important what is it that we need to keep and so this is kind of a a lesson for the people that go into the exhibition to say actually my photos you know what what are my what are the photos that I take now that are going to be the important pictures in 50 years time or 30 years time what about that practical question where you've got the negatives and they're a physical thing and when the shop closes down somebody's going to find this box full of stuff because it's there what happens with uh, all these digital um, digitized non-physical pictures that are being taken left right and center and being stored in the cloud and all that stuff i mean is there uh, obviously there's a lack of, of substance there in the first place and you, unless you can go through some steps to make it physical to print it out or whatever how as an archivist do you get hold of that stuff that's a very good question <laughs> it, there is a there is a change on how we look at um, digital records and it's about archivists being very digital savvy and how we manage those images because technology moves so quickly so images that may have been digitised 10 years ago, formats change really quickly so it's how you manage them going forward and we live in a world where there's so much information so it's about what is it, what is it that those images that we what is that image that is going to be the one that capsulates the picture? Because, you know, you have to kind of... We just basically have to be more selective and then be able to manage those formats going forward, really. But, but let me, what are you selecting from, though? I'm imagining uh, somebody takes a photograph with their phone or a series of photographs with their phone, and either that phone's going to go down the toilet at some point and they're all lost... Or they might get stored on a hard drive, which which will be thrown. You know, these it's yeah. it's not as though people put photos in albums and then give them to a charity shop anymore. I guess some of these these avenues to you must be blocked already. Do you know what? In Hackney, we're in this very fortunate position. There's lots of very good photographers who still um, value the print and the negative. Um, I suppose with with people taking their own photographs. Um, like and they're recording them on Flickr. That's that means that, that everybody is sharing the, uh, access to p- pictures. So, you know, maybe the archive will move away from managing photographs because actually they're online and they're being managed online. What happens if Flickr then, in ten years, didn't exist? You know, that's that's a question that we could debate for hours in the archive world, and we will, and we do. Um, but it is important for the archives to have a photographic record, and we're very good that we've got relationships with photographers um, that ha- recognise that their pictures are a record and that they do want to contribute those images that are selected both by themselves and the archive to, to manage those in the future. You present a very interesting prospect there, which is the privatisation of aspects of history. That's worrisome. <laughs> We've got two other exhibitions uh, left to mention as we uh, draw towards the, the back end of the podcast. And um, uh, perhaps, Councillor, could you introduce us to one of the other two? Yeah, so w- one of the other exhibitions is, is kind of related, as, as Talia said, and it's about the contribution of nurses from the Caribbean to the NHS. So, you know, the NHS is in the news a lot at the moment. Um, you know, where's its future, you know, 
you know, does it have enough funding? Um, um, well, this, this exhibition is a crossover of two of your areas, then. This is right. Yeah. This is your bag. This is true. This is true. I guess the argument would be that, you know, we wouldn't have any NHS were it not for the contribution of people coming here with their skills um, in the 1950s. And it's, I, I think it's just a, a really important um, exhibition because I think increasingly in the media we talk about immigration in in very negative terms and um, at the same time you'll have the same newspaper um, talking about immigration in very negative terms and then bemoaning failings in the NHS and I think you have to realise that not just in the NHS in a whole range of um, parts of our day-to-day life um, things wouldn't be where they are today were it not for the contribution of, of those people from other parts of the world. Is that on an ongoing basis as well? It, yeah, it is, and I, I would imagine forty years from now we, we could have a, a, a similar exhibition that talks about another community's um, contribution. But I think the contribution of um, Caribbean nurses is fascinating because they contributed at the very beginning of the NHS, and lots of them are still alive today. So you've just got very interesting lives because there are people who were born in the Caribbean and then moved at a relatively young age to the UK and are now um, retired. And so that's just an interesting story, moving from one side of the world to, to another. But also they can tell a story of the NHS um, from its inception to today, and they can reflect upon the changes. Um, they can be very proud of their contribution, but they can also reflect on the experiences they had, people coming over at the request of the British government, being told that they were needed, and then arriving here and meeting a very different reaction often when it came to finding accommodation or trying to make friends in, in a new area. You know, They were met with um, blatant racism often, and how they overcame some of those challenges. Um, so there's, there's a huge number of stories to be told there, and I think weaving their story into the story of something that is, as people often say, the nearest thing the British have to a religion, the NHS, is quite, is quite an interesting um, way of looking at history. Interesting you calling it a religion. I wonder whether you feel that that's valid. Could we... And it goes against everything that I think is right. But we do pay for the health service. Could you see a way in which a privatised health service would be in any way acceptable? Well, no, absolutely not. But I I think it's it's interesting that the reason it's like a religion is because it is something that there is... You know, almost universal acceptance of the principles behind it, which are that it is free at the point of use and its resources are allocated on the basis of need rather than ability to pay. But that doesn't mean that people in France or even in the United States don't hugely admire doctors and nurses who, again, are often from other parts of the world and um, don't admire um, their health institutions. I think the difference is in the UK, we admire the individuals, the buildings, the institutions, but we also admire the concept and that's a very un-British thing to do. Just while we're on the bigger picture stuff with the portfolio that you've got, I certainly feel as though I'm seeing a... Uh, I'm not sure if it's a real lurch to the right, but certainly more vocal, I would say far-right voices are coming up in the last five, ten years, particularly perhaps as a result of uh, the economic situation. And uh, one of the big claims is that immigration is a big problem. I just wonder what your views or arguments, counter-arguments might be around that issue. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm Scottish, so I'm, I'm British too, but in some senses I'm a migrant. Um, to London and to Hackney, as as many people in in London are, and you know, Hackney's is not a place where, frankly, you would live if you weren't comfortable with people coming from all parts of the world and contributing different things. Um, you know, the the BMP, the National Front before it, um, UKIP today have no resonance in Hackney. They they poll very badly. They don't they don't even try very hard. Um, they would be you know chased off of doorsteps because it's just not not something that we want here you know we're not better than anyone else but uh, it's it's such a vital part of the identity of hackney that we welcome and respect people from all parts of the world that those sort of views just don't gain any traction here but I, I completely accept that it is a huge challenge in other parts of the country. And one of the interesting things is the evidence shows that people are most scared of immigration in places where there's very little immigration. Um, and a part of that is fear of the unknown. So if you don't work with or your children don't go to school with people from different backgrounds, then maybe you buy into some of the things you read about in the newspapers or, you know, as I say, you're just scared of something that you're not familiar with. Um, but generally, um, the UKIPs and the BMPs of this world um, struggle in cosmopolitan, um, very ethnically mixed areas like our big cities. 
the, the claim is often made, and I guess this is we're, we're preaching to the converted as a London show, but the, the claim is often made that, uh, and it's usually attributed to the liberal left or something like that, that immigration is a good thing uh, and we get a richness and diversity and all of that stuff. And I think people who perhaps follow those further right views kind of dismiss that as uh, liberal hogwash. Could you make a, a more concrete road into that? And when we talk about the mixing up and the cultural benefits of uh, immigration and, and mixing cultures, what, what sort of thing would you point at? I think I would I would counter those arguments by saying that there is, first off, um, if if you don't value the cultural contribution that people from different parts of the world make, if you think that sort of Anglo-Saxon British culture is the best culture and the only cu- culture worth embracing, whatever that might be, um, then I can't, I can't argue with you in, in, on a cultural basis. But in purely economic terms, we have an ageing society. We have um, you know, people having to, you know, being told they're going to have to work until they're 70, and yet in large parts of the country, people, you know, the average person is too ill to work by the time they're in their late 50s. Um, we have huge skills gaps. There's a need, even if you don't want the culture, there is a need for people to come from other parts of um, the world in order for Britain to function, in order for people to work in our hospitals, to work in all of our major industries, to look after our older people. Um, so there's there's that economic argument, but I think also you're you're just missing so much. You know, there's so much richness that isn't in your life if you don't embrace other cultures. Now, I always find it astonishing when people are. Um, they're tempted to send their children to school somewhere else or to, you know, fee-paying school because they worry about, you know, their child being one of the few sort of so-called British people in a classroom. And I, you know, I've got, I've got a young baby who isn't anywhere near going to school yet, going to school yet. But I can't think of anything better in terms of preparing a child for the world they're likely to face than to be in a classroom where there are, you know, 20 different languages spoken at home and you learn about, you know, five different major religions and you understand the journeys that people have been through to get to where they are today i think it, it sets you up for the world that we all have to face so i think it's an entirely positive thing and the listener to the show will already be persuaded by uh, the the benefits the joys of seeing place through lots of different viewpoints and lots of different sets of eyes culturally and historically and uh, well, I don't know. Perhaps that brings us to our final uh, exhibition. What's going on? Okay, so we, we, the final exhibition is um, a partnership between Hackney Museum and Archives and the History Department of UCL, who have are now entered a second phase of their project on the legacies of the British slave trade. And so this was an opportunity where the university wanted to engage with a wider audience and um, who better to help them do that than a museum that um, is is held up in the museum world has been a very fine example of how to engage with different communities and to help people to participate proactively in the museum. Um, so this uh, this exhibition came about um, earlier this year. Uh, this project came about earlier this year, and was about engage creating a kind of an education resource for older children and adults to engage with the legacies of the British slave trade database which is based on the compensation records of 1833 um, of what slave owners got um, when the Emancipation Act was completed and their slaves were they're no longer allowed to have slaves in well, well, hold on a second compensation for the slave owners yes not compensation for the slaves I know it's, it's hard to get your head around but they because the slave was considered property and property had monetary value if your slave was taken away which you bought or inherited in many cases you've then lost you've lost your wealth your property and so they were compensated so the government paid out at the time 20 million pounds which is a huge huge amount of money to the slave owners so um, what UCL did is they took the records that are in the National Archives and they turned them into a searchable database and at Hackney Archives, we've done workshops uh, within Adult Learners Week in May to help people use the database. And we're repeating those workshops again in October as part of Black History Season um, to show people how to use that database and to drill down as to who those people are. And because we can search um, by place, this project was about again looking at Hackney as this kind of microcosm of what was going on in the UK at the time. 
of the Emancipation Act and at the end of the tra- slave trade and um, looking at who who the families were in Hackney that were claiming compensation because not everybody that claimed compensation got money um, but a lot of people a lot of people were successful and also looking at so this exhibition is looking at that uh, database in terms of Hackney but also looking at who else was in Hackney at the time and there was a very strong community of abolitionists in Hackney at the same time so they're living side by side by people who you could say had profiteered from the slave trade for generations um, and also that um, the black presence in Hackney at the time because there were black people in Hackney at the time so there's this kind of there's, a, there's sort of three stories being interwoven through this project and what's it, what uh, UCL are interested in is kind of using Hackney as an example of how this very national international record um, can be used on a local scale and, and can be made relevant to local people so that's the kind of interesting thing so we're still going with the project we're still in the middle of developing education resources Um, it was funded by the arts council england as part of a project to bring together museums and universities um, called chair academy and it's been working really well and we're that kind of that project is going to accumulate into a conference on the 8th of November on teaching black history, which is led by the history department of UCL and bringing together various panels of speakers to talk about the presence of black history and how it's important for everybody to learn that, you know, you can't learn British history without understanding the black presence of it. Um, so that's that will be a good end for the project but also a very good starting point for conversations around teaching black history not just something that we think about for a month every 12 months but something that's embedded in how we teach history so we've got three exhibitions that are done each very differently ron gibson's photographic is is very much collection that's come back to hackney it's about engaging the local people they're pictures of local people that are totally unidentified they're just at the moment it's just a four digit negative number on the wall but what we're hoping is that people will recognize people and share those stories and identify those people so over the weeks the captions will grow and there'll be more stories told so they'll go from being this unidentified person striking a pose and in this very same studio to actually who this person is and what was their story and what was their journey i'm, I'm minded of donald trump being tweeted a picture of uh, fred and rosemary west w- recently and being asked to retweet it and that the tweeter claimed that it was his parents and they they're a big fan and would he mind retweeting and wishing them the best have you got any safeguards against people claiming uh, hackney uh, citizens for their very own well um the process as uh, is, is, is it would be for anything any historical research that we do is that it's everything that what people say is checked and double-checked and triple-checked. So before that caption is put on, there will be a lot of background checks as to whether that person is the person that someone thinks might be their second cousin removes uncle or the person they used to live next door. So that is all. that will all be checked um, because that's that's what we do. Um, so that, that, that was the first exhibition. And the um, Retired Caribbean Nurses in the NHS is, a, is an exhibition that was done um, by Black Women in the Arts, who are a Hackney organisation, and they got money from the Heritage Lottery Fund to do that, and the museum supported them in that in that project. So that is their project and their exhibition, and we gave them the space and advice on how to do the exhibition. And the final one, Legacies of the British Slave Trade, is a partnership with UCL. So it's they're actually three nice examples of the different ways that the museum actually works with different community groups and partners as well. Just so much material there and that's beside the museum itself which is as mentioned above definitely worth a visit and it's very very user friendly what's the starting point for all of this where do we where can we find out uh, the end time for the exhibitions and, and find out how to get here and all that jazz well you could just google hackney black history month and i'm sure the council's webpage will have um a lovely copy of the program which is also available in all the local libraries for those people that are listening that are local to Hackney or in London. There's a whole series of events that are going on across 
the branch libraries in Hackney. Um, it's already started, um, but I'm sure by the time this goes out, there'll still be activities that are going on for... Um, I was just seeing there's tropical smoothie-making for children, there's songs and words and, and music for adults, there's uh, literary... Um, there's a celebration of Maya Andrew who passed away, passed away earlier this year. There's, there's health uh, workshops. There's genealogy and ancestry at the archives. So there's, there's a whole myriad of, of opportunities for people to get involved in, and they're all free. Oh, that's always good news. <laughs> always, yes, of course. Well, there's a very charming-looking chap with a, a huge afro and a moustache who looks like it might be one of the Gibson pictures. I'm not sure. It might be entirely unconnected, in which case I've just done him a terrible injustice. Um, he is indeed. And, and, yeah, oh, thank God. Uh, and he was at the launch on Thursday, so <laughs> we did identify him. Before. Does he still have the afro? No, not quite, but he, he hasn't really changed in 30 years. He's he totally... I felt like I knew him when he walked through the door, actually. I think he was a little bit embarrassed because <laughs> I've seen his face so much in the last few months. So you're having exact uh, reverse experience that some of the people who are recognising the pictures are having. Yeah. We've got to leave it there. Thanks for having us today, Councillor Jonathan McShane and Talia Coombs. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. My heart That's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Jonathan McShane and Talia Coombs. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.